Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. She asked me, I need to get out of here. Can you help me? The Stasi, in essence, didn't have to be everywhere. It just had to create the mythology. We all didn't believe that would stay open for a while. That was the fear they might close it again. Reunification isn't done after 30 years. People in the West, they kept their country. They are still living in what was there. 30 years ago, Berlin was divided by a concrete wall up to three and a half meters high. It was guarded by armed soldiers and studded with gun towers. When I watched that wall fall in East Berlin on November the 9th, 1989, it signified the tearing down of the Iron Curtain that had divided Europe since the end of the Second World War. It also promised the start of a new era of freedom and peace in what was to become a unified Germany. But today, the old labels of East and West haven't entirely faded. The evening out of living standards promised on unification hasn't materialized across the old border and a new generation of Germans on either side of it are reflecting on what it means for their identity now. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week I've come back to Berlin to ask, on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the war, is Germany still divided? I'm here at the Brandenburg Gate on the eastern side. Its grand neoclassical columns crown so many of those famous scenes of jubilation, cheering crowds armed with hammers and chisels, toppling the concrete blocks of the Berlin Wall. And with me is Connie Gunther, our Berlin bureau manager. She was also among the crowds on that East German side. Connie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. How does it feel to be back in front of the Brandenburg Gate? Well, it feels nice. It's a sunny evening. I'm surrounded by lots and lots of people who obviously want to celebrate the big anniversary on Saturday evening. And actually, where I'm standing now, I was unable to be before the wall came down because this is an area about 50 meters away from the original state border at Platz der Republik, Square of the Republic. I'm very cheerful. And I arrived in East Berlin the first time, I think it was about 1983 or beginning of of 84. You were a student. We didn't know each other then. We knew each other a few years later. But what was life like for you in East Berlin in those early 80s? Apart from the fact that I couldn't travel, I had a very good life because I worked as an interpreter. I met many foreigners, English-speaking people in particular. So they were my window to the open world. Otherwise, you know... Uh, financially I was okay and as far as material goods are concerned okay as a teenager I was longing for jeans we couldn't buy real good jeans in East Germany and of course there was a huge difference between East Berlin and the rest of the country because Berlin East Berlin the government wanted to make it a showcase and to show the West we can do as well as you can do so shops were a little bit better uh, supplied than in the rest of the country which actually put many many people that were quite angry because the bananas and the the oranges they all went to Berlin or most of it I don't know how did you feel about it Anne when you came what was your impression but I was studying German at, at Oxford but it was thought to be a bit odd to be interested too much in East Germany 
Germany, outside a bit of literature, there was always a little political suspicion. And it's interesting that you said, you know, you were basically quite happy with the material offer. I mean, to me, even coming as I thought, not as a, a big high spender, I was in total shock when I saw an East German supermarket, the Kaufhalle, the buying hall, as it was so, so promisingly called. Um, and the jeans, of course, you talk about the jeans when you brought all your fashion with you, and we stood out like a sore thumb, not least because we had very colourful clothes, I think, compared to a lot of, of East Germans. But really it wasn't the shortages in East Germany or East Berlin that, that bothered me very much. The first thing that really struck me, difficult for people who speak their minds a lot, was how constrained it was that even very open and interesting and friendly people, there were certain subjects where you could just feel the ice in the air, a bit of fear as well, because you were a Westerner. I hadn't realised how they would feel that I was in some way a bit of a danger, even if I had no intention of being that, just because any conversation could be seen as sensitive, perhaps that someone might be listening. So that felt a bit lonely, actually. But I don't know if that was just the view of a rather spoiled Westerner. Well, I absolutely agree with you. Among our East German friends, we were very careful what we talked on the telephone. Yeah. You know, it was an absolute rule, don't talk any political issues, no criticism of the regime on the phone. And of course, there were these restrictions you learned to live with. We learned to read between the lines, you know, and, and people who had a message, uh, I mean a critical message, they knew how to do it. I guess I met a lot of people here who felt very conflicted about East Germany but for the main they expected to live their lives here and if they were discontent well they kept it under wraps or they were quite quietly oppositional but for a lot of people in the years since the wall went up in 1961 life in East Germany was simply unbearable and exactly how many people died trying to cross the wall is still disputed but it's at least 140 and more than 5,000 did make it to the West, often in terribly difficult circumstances, leaving their families behind. Some went over the wall before it got too high in the early years. Some were smuggled through the border in cars and some went under the wall and a number of those tunnels do still survive. Connie, you went to have a look down there today. Yes, that was amazing and incredible. I mean, I knew that these escape tunnels existed, but this was really the first time I saw one in reality. And we saw one today, which was never finished. Eight meters were missing before it could have worked, but the Stasi, the state security, discovered it. So the tunnel builders had to escape. Well, I'm standing here in one of the last escape tunnels built in 1970. It was supposed to end in a in Brunnenstraße number 142. And today, the missing link between the house in Brunnenstraße 142 and the former escape tunnel has been built by an organization, Berliner Unterwelten, Berlin Underworlds. And we can look into the escape tunnel to the western direction and to the eastern direction and is very, very low. The ground is very rough and, and imagine there was water sometimes inside. It's not wider than a meter and the height looks like, I don't know, maybe again a meter or even less than a meter. So definitely one had to crawl. You can't st walk here in standing, it's impossible. 
There are many visitors today uh, who came for the inauguration, and among those, many of the former tunnel builders or Fluchthelfer. Fluchthelfer meaning they help refugees to get out of East Germany. My name is Joachim Neumann. Uh, I left East Berlin in December uh, 61, four months after the erection of the war, uh, with a Swiss passport. I had a lot of friends in East Berlin and uh, my girlfriend remained in East Berlin when I left and I had promised them to help. My name is Rolf Kabisch, born in East Germany, but that, uh, due to the uh, what would happen after the war, I came very early already in 1946 or 47 uh, to West Germany but I came back to, to West Berlin to uh, start my studies. A cousin of mine uh, approached me. She asked me, uh, I need to get out of here. Can you help me? What was it like working in the tunnel when you dug it out in those days? You must know here in Bernauer Straße, where we started the tunnel, that um, was West Berlin. The other side of the street was already East Berlin. The East German border guards and, and the Secret Service, the Stasi, they could look very easily on the other side of the road what, what's going on there. And out of a sudden you have there every day a team of young people uh, going into the house there in the morning, clean, nicely dressed and coming out in the evening, dirty, full of mud. Um, you know, even the Secret Service, they needed less than three fingers <laughs> to, to count what's going on there. Yeah. Now, therefore, we lived in this house. It was a former bakery. We lived in the shopping room for about a week or two weeks, and then we had a week off in order to minimize the movements of us in and out of the house. We were there a group of five, six, uh, who were digging in the tunnel for two hours or so, then you needed to be replaced by another one because it was less than a square meter in diameter. That wasn't a very comfortable work. It was really a shitty work. And the further the tunnel was progressing, the bigger the problem with fresh air. We had a uh, vacuum cleaner. The electric poles were just changed. It was blowing the air into a plastic tube, which then got a little bit of fresh air at the front face of the tunnel. And so you couldn't do that for longer than two hours, maximum, I would say. Did you manage to get your girlfriend then through the tunnel to West Berlin? Yes, finally I did, but uh, there were some difficulties before uh, because of uh, another tunnel. This tunnel was betrayed and she uh, went to prison for 16 months. And around two weeks after she was released from prison, this uh, Tunnel 57 was, was ready and I, I could give her the message that it is possible to use this tunnel and she, she did it. So I stand in East Berlin where the tunnel entrance was 
and waited. And the refugees came, and suddenly she came. It was uh, more or less unbelievable. So after all this ex experience, and we have the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, what are you thinking today when you are here in, in a similar tunnel? What, what feelings do you have today? It's far away. My personal conclusion is it was successful. I took part in six tunnels and three of them were successful. And through this tunnel came in total 89 people. And so oh, I'm going to say I'm a little bit proud about it. Yeah, that's right. Though my cousin could not get through this tunnel, we couldn't reach her in East Berlin because she she was studying in East Berlin. She had been seconded to help the crops bringing in. It was at fall, and that was in East Germany uh, common uh, procedure. But you know, I have seen there the people coming through the tunnel, and I've seen them. I've seen their faces, and if you once looked in those faces, in these faces, in these eyes, you'll not forget this. So finally, the result was it was really worth to do that. But later on, yeah, okay, it, it was, I would say, one of the last tunnels which was successful. Yeah. And uh, the Stasi, of course, They weren't stupid at all. <laughs> Developed their methods to block those activities. Uh, so we had to look for other means. So my name is Dagmar Hofstedt. I'm the spokesperson for the Federal Commissioner for the Stasi Records here in Berlin. And we're here at the former grounds of the Ministry for State Security in a part of Berlin called Lichtenberg. We call it a place that for 40 years organized repression. And then it's also a place of the peaceful revolution. On January 15, 1990, only two months after the wall fell, the people came here and stormed this headquarter and symbolically broke the power of the Stasi through that. And do we know something about statistics? Uh, how many files or are there any statistical information about what is stored really here? Right, so we had the headquarters here in Berlin, but there were 15 districts in East Germany. Each of the districts had their own district office, and then there were counties, and each of the counties, 209 counties, had their own Stasi offices as well. So we have um, a system that is everywhere in, in the last small village where, the Stasi, where there's Stasi and where's information observance and surveillance. And we have to the tune of 111 kilometers of records here. That is about 70 miles, one file next to the other. Right, should we go to the next room then, maybe? Sure, yeah, sure. So you can hear it's a little more um, echoey in these, in these rooms, but they're pretty much, this is the building from the 50s, this is pretty much how it looked like. Before you can store and index information, you have to collect them. Who were the people, those so-called informal members of the Stasi? I mean, they were obviously the ones who spied upon people and the first collectors of information, so right? Th th the logic really is that if you have a socialist state and you want people to uh, be positive about this one party in your state and support the power, everything is fine. But if you 
express what you truly think about the system, you do that much more in the privacy of your home, amongst people you trust. So the Stasi relied heavily on a, a big system of informants. So by the end 1989, there were 91,000 Stasi officers who were officially working for the Stasi and double the amount, about 180,000, unofficially collaborating with the Stasi. So do we know what impact the Stasi civilians had on people in the East and maybe even in the West? It's, it's sort of hard to quantify, but the system of having a society that is permeated by this information system is a very powerful tool. The Stasi, in essence, didn't have to be everywhere. It just had to create the mythology of all-powering, all-knowing entity, and then you are much more inclined to um, conform. So you knew there was something happening in the background and then in the revolution, that's why the access to the records was there. You wanted to find out how did they change my life? What really happened? Why did I not get accepted at the university? Was right. I stupid? Right. Or was somebody telling that I was politically unreliable? And who was that yeah. and why did they do that? Mm -hmm. If you are an employer of a public entity, you can decide to vet everybody in the parliament or to vet the employees of your administration against these records to make known previously um, a secret collaboration with the Stasi. If you have been incarcerated or arrested and put to jail through Stasi activity, you can prove with our records that it was a political um, verdict and you are um, eligible for um, a pension, for compensation and all these kinds of things. So these records can be used to um, improve on the injustices done. But these records are also there to prove that the Stasi officers who worked here were gainfully employed by the previous state and they can use these records to uh, get their pension funds from the United Germany because it, it covers both sides of the story in a way. And tell me, how aware were you of Stasi civilians in, the, in East Germany? I certainly knew that people I was talking to, fellow students or their friends, that not everyone was to be trusted and that people were a little bit wary of this or that person. It was signalled, usually, rather than said. I don't think I heard the word Stasi very much when I lived in the old East Germany. I've certainly heard it a lot since. The extent to which it was all-embracing, that it was kind of everywhere in life, came to us really after 1989 and the opening up of the files, including my own, and I'm sure you've looked at yours, where you just went, oh, wow, they had all that. What did you read? There was really a fragment in the, the first search from my time at the Humboldt University. All right. And that point, that it was very funny, actually, because clearly I had quite a lazy, I should have thought quite low-ranking Stasi officer on my case. I was a young student, but they had to report on me. And then they did pick up, because they obviously had good monitoring, that I was making some broadcasts for the BBC in German, which I was broadcasting from West Berlin for the German service of the BBC. And from that, they concluded that I was negative feindlich eingestellt, that I had negative hostile views of East Germany, though they never came after me or confronted me with it at the time. But they certainly noted that. Then this guy was obviously under some pressure and it's all scored out who he talked to. It's redacted, I suppose we say. And he said, well, I don't know, she seems very bright. However, uh, she has she claims to have some contacts, but we cannot identify them. I thought he's a useless Stasi guy. Uh, the next uh, file was a, a little bit more and it was from the, the second time I was here. And that's when they clearly were copying everything that I was broadcasting or my, my facts and identifying some of my contacts. Could you figure out uh, whom they 
sort of asked or who were these unofficial informants who sort of talked to them about you? I guess I worked out it was the guy you, you had a betrayer, didn't you? You always had someone who looked after you in the GDR and mine was from some front organization. But I think I guessed that Bernd, well, we were having very nice cream teas sometimes in posh hotels, was, was probably not just there to be friendly. So I guessed about him, but very recently, for various reasons, going back over my file, I remembered going to tea with a, a tutor in the Germanistic department And he informed on me. But it took me, weirdly, it took me 20 years to put it together. It just came back to me that uh, he was pushing me a bit about what I thought about East Germany as well as what I thought about the literature. And did you ever try to contact these persons and confront them with what they had informed about you? To be perfectly honest, I was more worried about it being people in my close circle, my intimate circle of friends. I had someone who came up to me himself and said uh, I was supposed to look after you as a journalist and I did write some reports and I said, like, no kidding. I think we kind of knew that, that that sort of person was doing it. If it had been a friend, I think it would have been a lot more painful and I was a bit anxious about that. And that's maybe why I did wait a few years. We're in Berlin marking the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that's got a lot of personal memories for me. I was there that night. I was doing my reporting. I ran from the press conference, which seemed to announce that something big was happening at the border and spoke to some of the border guards who refused to believe me. And then a couple of hours later, when it began to hit the evening news, well... Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people by 11 o'clock in the evening were at the Berlin Wall shouting, let us cross, let us cross. And after a lot of consultation and head scratching and talking on Bakelite phones, the border guards just gave up the ghost and opened up the wall. And it was as if it had never been there. So bliss it was that night to be alive and be in Berlin. We woke up the next morning with huge hangovers, it must be said. And I suppose I thought, hang on, did this really happen? Was it some sort of exception? And what's going to happen next? Connie Gunter, you're our bureau manager here in Unified Berlin. You were in East Germany at that time. What did you feel? Did you think, well, this is the beginning of a whole new chapter? I definitely thought this is the beginning of the whole new chapter. I didn't cross the wall that night. I had to go to work. Uh, the wall came down on a Thursday. So I was very disciplined to go to my office on the Friday morning. I think so. And, and I discovered only half of our staff was there. So I guess many other people also had a hangover or simply used the day to cross the wall because we, we all didn't believe that would stay over open for a while. There was the fear they might close it again. Uh, but yet, I definitely realized this is something very, very special. And it changed my whole life. I think that's really interesting that we assume that history moves in one direction only. I must say, I woke up that day and I thought, what's going to happen if they try and close it? And it was only that evening when friends took me to the Bonhomestrasse and people then started using hammers I thought this isn't coming back. But I have to say, it took me a day to process that. I thought it maybe something could go wrong again, because it always had before. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. What changed for you in concrete terms once the exhilaration of those big party nights was over? What really mattered to you? And what did you hope to achieve by it? 
the main hopes I had, and I could achieve this more or less immediately, was to travel, free travel. And I wanted to go to England because I studied English. I was able to work for an English news agency very quickly. They paid me in hard currency immediately. That gave me the budget to travel. And in uh, spring 1990, I did my first uh, trip to England. The big German picture was, of course, then to merge two countries with completely different economic and political systems into one. And that was not an easy task. Around about the 90s, we see that infrastructure was, yeah, let's call it a disaster. I went to the German Institute for Economic Research to speak to Christina van der Werden about how much progress had been made in the last 30 years. After 40 years of socialism, infrastructure was a really bad state. When we look at the first data we have, GDP per head was around about 30%. So the major strategy was that the new lender got more money, more fiscal money for investment. The federal government stepped in with additional money. This is the Solidar Pact. Because of this additional burden to the federal government, there had been an additional tax The solidarity tax, which should be used for investment payments. GDP per head today has reached a level of uh, more or less 70%. So we still have a gap between the Western and the Eastern part. Do you think that the currency union in 1990 was a good thing to integrate the East German economy or a bad thing? Because we know that many, many companies collapsed, uh, they didn't survive, or they were had been sold for nothing by the trustees agency, the Troy There had been the question how to do that unification and they decided to do the currency union in a way uh, which does mean that the exchange rate between both uh, currencies was one-to-one. -one. Everybody knew that an exchange rate one-to-one -one, uh, was a political exchange rate and that the competitiveness of the Eastern economy would be hurt by something like that. I think we're going to have to distinguish very, very sharp between um, a political answer and an economic answer. Let me give you first the economic answer. It was a catastrophe. If the exchange rate would have been different, it would have reflected the weakness of the economy. From a political point of view, there had been no alternative to do this. A unification like that, everybody who was killed at that point would have left the eastern part of the country. From today's perspective, when you look back the last almost 30 years of German unification, what have been the main problems or the obstacles in the process, mainly in the economic process of reunification? At that time, young, skilled people left the eastern part. Young, skilled women left. And of course, when young women leave, then there are less children. When there are less children, then of course the future The next years is also burdened by what had happened in the past. We still see some positive effects because the unemployment rate today is falling because all the old people that are still unemployed, which did at that time not leave the eastern part, are now going uh, to retirement. This does mean currently we see some positive aspects that the unemployment rate is going uh, down by a higher speed than in the western part, but this is only temporarily. 
At the end of this year, the Solidarity Pact and the State Financial Equalization Scheme will expire. Is it still possible, do you think, to achieve equal living conditions between East and West without the Solidarity Pact? And what needs to happen next? There are more cities in the western part and not so many bigger cities in the eastern part, which is also a factor for the point that economic growth in the eastern part is not as high as it is in the western part. We will need much more uh, transfers, much more resources to come closer to that point. And this, of course, can result in a political problem because someone has to pay the money that goes to the weak regions. If you ask me what you can do, then I can also say, only tell you, you're going to have to soften the trends. You're going to try to change the trends. But we are talking about demographic trends and demographic trends are difficult to change, need a lot of time to change. Migration can help, but migration would not be enough to change the trends. So we will have some years which may become a little bit more problematic. So even the peaceful revolution had winners and losers. Over the years, this continuing inequality has fueled a new kind of identity politics within Germany. So, Connie, how long did you go on feeling like an Eastner, an Aussie, after the war fell? Well, I'm feeling like an Eastner, but a, a winner. I don't think about how I feel, whether I feel East or West. But of course, these days, when we celebrate the 30th anniversary, I'm quite proud to say I was part of it. But in my daily life, it doesn't really matter. I don't feel either East or West. I just feel German. A lot of talk about nostalgie or nostalgia, nostalgia for the old East in the air. Do you have nostalgia? No, I don't have it at all. I don't feel nostalgic or nostalgic at all. Now there's a whole generation of Germans who never experienced a divided Germany at all. So we thought we should hear from some of them. The people in the West, they kept their country. They are still living in what was there. I think they care less in a way. For them, uh, this chapter is closed. But the people in, in the East, they had the perception of being taking away something. My name is Alexander Finger. I come from Berlin and I was born in 1991. I was born in, in West Berlin. I uh, grew up as well with Western standards. And when uh, my family decided to move back to East Germany, I felt like an outsider in a way. My father left East Germany in 1984 because he uh, was a political opponent in the GDR and he was put into prison and he got sold to the West. The West German government bought up to 33,000 uh, prisoners, political prisoners from the East to free them as well in order to, to show their superiority in comparison to the socialism that was in a way forced to sell their own population in order to have financial backup. My grandparents were very, very convinced communists. My grandfather was even part of the SED. He worked at the uni, he um, had his own radio program, and he was somebody who uh, wanted to create a better Germany. He came to East Germany as a refugee, and he was determined to create a humane state in the east of Germany. And of course, this is something that I don't want to forget. I'm Melanie Stein. I'm a journalist and a presenter. And I was born in 1985 in Brandenburg in Eastern Germany. Being East German uh, to me 
it never was really important for my my life or my career but since the parliamentary election in 2017 something has changed because you can see really differences between east and west and there are many people or more people in eastern germany vote for the extreme right and what happened in the media is that people were talking about east germans as the the extreme right people and then i was thinking hey this is not really true i am also east german i cannot only say it's because of the media probably it's because also because of people like me who don't say that they are from East Germany. I don't feel East or West German at all, so I feel myself as a German, as a European and as a Berliner, so I don't have this category of I'm East German because I honestly don't know, really know what East German is. My name is Johannes Nichelmann, I'm a journalist from Berlin, Germany. I was born in 1989 in May, so half a year before the fall of the Berlin Wall in East Berlin. I think some young East Germans, I call them now East Germans, still looking for kind of identity because they learn in the media or in contact to friends from, from other parts of Germany that they are East Germans. So what does that mean and how does it feel to be an East German? I think it's very important that we don't stop talking about this topic after all this uh, jubilee thing we, we are into right now. So I think we have to talk about this consistently. This is a big mistake maybe for the last 30 years that we in Germany only talked about it when it came to the 3rd of October, 9th of November and all those dates. I really hope that we still fight for those topics and I think that we fight <laughs> is, is still a sign that reunification isn't done after 30 years. Today, walking through the city, you can cross the line where the wall once stood multiple times in a day and not even notice. But it's clear that as a country, Germany is still dealing with the legacy of decades of division. Here at the Brandenburg Gate, above my head floats a shimmering purple and gold curtain. It's an installation by the American artist Patrick Sheehan called Visions in Motion. It's made up of 30,000 messages from people living in Germany today. Messages of their hopes for the future of post-wall Germany. And we'd love to hear your experiences of these momentous events. How you think they shape Germany and the rest of the world today. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And to read our essays on the legacy of the fall of the wall for Germany and the Eastern Bloc and beyond, please do subscribe. Listeners can get their first 12 issues for $12 or £12 at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy with Connie Gunter, and from Berlin, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.